Today, we had the pleasure of interviewing Jillian Morris, the founder and CEO of Hitlist app. It was one of Fast Company's best apps in 2017, has been featured multiple times on Apple, iTunes Store, on the New York Times, TechCrunch, Venture Beat, The Next Web, Lifehacker, and the list goes on. Jillian tells this amazing story how she built this app from the ground up, which started off as a essentially a newsletter for her friends where she would recommend deals for trips and turned into an app that has, um, at least in 2017, was seeing 10,000 trips per month booked in over 183 countries. Jillian talks about her experience fundraising, her experience really starting this company from the ground up. And anyone that's interested in starting a business around travel should definitely check out this episode. And now here's our conversation with Jillian Morris. Welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And we're sitting today with Jillian Morris of Hitlist. Jillian was kind enough to uh, visit us today and tell us her story, share a story about how she built her travel app from the ground up. And this is your first business, is it, Jillian? Yes. Okay, wow. So I love talking to first-time entrepreneurs and really understanding, especially when you don't have much experience building a business, how do you get it off the ground? That's what we're all about here on The Mentors. And I was introduced to Jillian by a good friend of mine, Emily Baum, who I work with now at the NYU Entrepreneurial Institute. And Jillian, Emily was telling me a couple of days ago that I don't know if she met you at this place or just like this is one place you guys hung out, but... Apparently, you lived on a barge uh, somewhere in San Francisco or outside of San Francisco. Tell me about that because I don't think I've ever heard of anyone living in a barge. It's uh, It was a car ferry and okay. it was a retired car ferry that used to run around Iceland. And I was not officially living there. No one officially lived there. But it, uh, it, w- it was a place that we had a number of people who monitored it because insurance required that we had someone on the boat 24-7. So, you know. Occasionally, that meant sleeping there as well. Uh, and it really was this incredible. I do. I think when you know the history of 21st century Silicon Valley is written, I think this boat will factor into it because it was such an incredible melting pot of people. Some huge and incredibly interesting companies came out of the sort of cross pollination that happened there. There were also a lot of great parties. <laughs> the, yeah, I'm assuming the parties was one of the draws. But is this? Like, is this something that's common in San Francisco that somebody will convert some random space somewhere and then that'll turn it into like a community? I mean, how, do you know the history of how that uh, the car ferry boat got started? I, I do know the history of that boat in particular well, but it's also not unusual at all. In San Francisco, I'd say there are more than a hundred of s- these types of spaces, these community. A lot of them are converted warehouses. Uh, a lot of them are converted Victorian mansions. There's one of my favorite places, this place called the Embassy which has spawned this whole network of embassies around the world. And they took this gorgeous 19th century mansion, 16 bedrooms, and now it houses, I think, 20 people, because in one of the rooms, there's a bunk room. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, also just this wonderful thing where you walk in and it's you know, upholstered walls and chandeliers and ornate furniture, and you're sort of not expecting it to be this dynamic hub of you know, sort of scrappy entrepreneurs. 
That's really cool. And I I love it. When there's a lot of creative people in one space, you never know what's going to happen. And I think that's probably one of the things that drew you to San Francisco and you stayed there for a while when you were building your business. So tell us a little bit about the history, because I think your background is somewhat non-traditional for a tech entrepreneur in San Francisco. So what led you to starting Hitlist then? I was actually living in Istanbul when I started Hitlist. So I moved to Istanbul after graduation and was living in Istanbul, based there, working all throughout the Middle East and Central Asia. And as you say, not in a traditional tech background at all. I was a journalist, I worked briefly for CNN, and then I became a consultant and I worked on security projects for the most part Mm. in developing countries and conflict zones. And I would write these reports about, you know, here's the likelihood that this is going to get blown up by terrorists or things like this that's at an extreme. And I was doing that for many years. And it's a really, it was a very interesting life. But ultimately, I felt like I was writing these reports, I didn't know whether anyone was actually using them for anything. A lot of the times it felt like this was a report that someone had to get written to get some grant or to check some box, but Hmm. I didn't feel like I had any real impact. But I, I learned a ton. I like to think of it as my sort of master's degree that instead of paying for, I got paid very well for. And so I was in that position where I I had some money saved up. And I was thinking, what do I actually want to do with the world, which I realize is like a great privilege, not everyone gets there. But I also think a lot of people get to that point, and don't do anything with it. So I just started thinking, what are the problems I've seen? How can I address them? I always love to travel. And I was always trying to get my friends to come and visit Istanbul on the side. And so I started, I wrote this script that went on top of kayak and did hundreds of searches every day. And every time I found good cheap flights to Istanbul, I would send them to my friends. Hmm. And so wait, were you a self-taught engineer as well, where you could write a script to do that, to crawl a website like that? Yes. Yeah. I learned using Code Academy, Mm -hmm. which is an online free tool. And also just by leaning on other developers, which was actually one of the big revelations for me when I started trying to learn how to code. And I talked to people about what I was doing. And the number of total strangers who are willing to sit down or either over the phone, respond to questions over email and walk me through coding problems was astonishing. Mm -hmm. I was like, why do these people have all this spare time? And why are they so generous? And I think that's actually just very common within the tech industry. People are excited when you're trying to build something and and they're happy to help. Mm-hmm. And most people just don't ask for help. And did you learn with the intention to actually build something or where, where did the curiosity to learn how to code come from? I definitely was interested in building something. I had been at university right around when Facebook started and that also sort of spawned a lot of other people I knew starting companies. So I sort of saw I was on the East Coast, I wasn't at Stanford or something. So I wasn't in the the belly of the beast, so to speak. But I had a lot of friends who had started companies. And I I knew it was this whole tech industry was something that was very interesting. So tell me the the state you're in right now, you're in Istanbul, you're kind of learning how to code, you're doing these assignments, trying to figure out what's gonna be the next thing that I do, or maybe create in this world. And you're trying to get your friends to come to Istanbul. How does this turn into a business? So I noticed that all these people said they were going to come to Istanbul and then they didn't. But then when I started sending them emails saying, here's an amazing flight deal, 
you should book it, they would. It was amazing how often they would. I would send five emails and four people would book this flight. And I was like, you've been saying you would come and visit me for two years and this was all I needed to do. Uh, And it really led me to this insight that a lot of people have the time and inclination and some money to travel, but they don't know how to find a good deal. They're overwhelmed with choice and it has to actually be a good deal. But if we could break down that barrier, if we could show people, okay, you've said you always wanted to go to Tokyo. Here's an actual flight, not a deal email alert that said, okay, there are $400 flights to Tokyo in November 2019, various states, good luck, go find them, Mm. which is the style that most deal emails come out in. But with Hitlist, you can specify even the dates that you're interested in going between. We send you only things that are relevant to what you've expressed interest in. Um, I noticed that this had really high conversion. Friends started asking, can you let me know when there are cheap flights to San Francisco? Can you let me know when there are cheap flights to London? Mm. And so I started expanding this and I had this giant spreadsheet and it was taking a lot of my time on the side. And meanwhile, I'd actually started working on a different idea with some friends who I had kind of recruited and I was building this thing called Trip Common, which was okay, my friend lives in London, I live in Istanbul, what's the cheapest place for both of us to meet? Mm. And that wasn't really going anywhere. But the number of people asking for deal alerts was going up and up and up. And so eventually we pivoted and started focusing on that instead. So when you were thinking about the other business idea, were you spending more time on this side project spreadsheet that you're managing or this new idea you're trying to get off the ground about meeting somewhere? Uh... I definitely was spending more time on Trip Common to start. And I guess I I should give context there. That was something that had been an idea at that time I'd been thinking about for like six years and had always wanted to have this tool. And to start working on that, I had entered a hackathon with a friend and we'd won that hackathon. Mm. And that was a really great first step, first validation. And then we decided to go all in. But then we worked on it for nine months or so, and it just wasn't going anywhere. Even though we'd built something that I thought was really, really cool, no one used it. No one came back. I would say 80% of the people we talked to sort of said, oh, that sounds vaguely interesting. 10% were really excited, and 10% were honest and said, I'd never use that. (laughs) Then compared to when we switched to Hitlist and could say, you know, we'll send you alerts when flight prices drop. Pretty much everyone was interested in that. So how did you then, once you decided to pivot into that business, how did you grow your user base? It sounds like it was very, very organic in the beginning. Basically friends, and I like doing this, and uh, it seems like more and more people are finding out about it through word of mouth, and I'm managing this process. So now that you pivoted into this, and it's turning into a real business, I guess, because you said you recruited some people as well that were helping you out, uh, how did you start growing your user base, and what was the next step there? I had no idea what I was doing. So it was mostly a process of emailing everyone I knew and trying to ask them to like the Facebook page that I had created for it and things like this. Our real breakthrough came when we were at a conference. We went to Dublin Web Summit. Now I guess it's just called Web Summit because they keep on moving it to different cities. (laughs) But it was the relatively early days. And I met a reporter from the Next Web and he wrote a piece about Hitlist. And the piece really struck a nerve and it ended up getting picked up by a few other publications. And at the end of two weeks, we had about 25,000 downloads uh, sparked by press. 
That's very cool. So start it just started off as a newsletter, right? It wasn't even an app yet at this point? or Yeah, I guess it had a newsletter-like component, but it was mm-hmm. more one-to-one. People would okay. send me, and it was, so, it was totally personal. Mm-hmm. And by the time we tried to scale anything, we knew we wanted to make it something self-service, so we did have an app. That's interesting. So you decided to go to Web Summit just knowing that there was going to be a lot of reporters there? What was the, how did, how did that decision happen? Because, you know, a lot of people, you have a lot of things to do when you're starting a company. And so going to a conference sometimes maybe is not, sometimes it could be the right thing or not. So was that like something that you planned? I think I got a targeted email in, inviting me to pitch for a pitch competition. And so we were entered in a pitch competition. That was why we decided to go uh, because there was an opportunity to win $50,000 and get all of this exposure. And at the time, I think Web Summit has become very commercialized now and they charge startups like $5,000 to have that opportunity. But at the time, it was something like $500. That seemed like a worthwhile reason to sort of go out and get out there. And we also hadn't officially launched in any way. Even at that time, I wasn't really aware of the concept of launching your app. Hmm. But I did want it to get in front of a bigger platform, and I thought that would be a good way to do it. Do you remember at one point when you were managing these one-on-one sort of conversations with people about deals that you decided, I should build an app to help scale this? Like, how many people and conversations were you managing at that point? I was probably talking to at least 50-plus people, and my... Two co-founders who I was working on this other project with, I remember at some point talking to them about this, and it was really one of my co-founders who was like, you idiot, why aren't we doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And we were also in this phase where we knew TripCommon wasn't working out, and we were going through these little sprints of building other things that we thought might resonate with people. And it was literally just one afternoon, we mocked up what the app would look like, And it was also soon after Tinder had come out. And it was originally, it was basically like Tinder for cities. You would say, here's a city of Amsterdam. You swipe right or left if you're interested in going to Amsterdam. So you'd build up this list of cities that you were interested in. Hmm. And yeah, from then we built it relatively quickly. So you went to this conference and how many users or signups did you have before the conference, before Web Summit? Oh my gosh. Like a hundred. Okay. So it was growing organically, but it was something you could very much so handle yourself, the interactions with a hundred people. What happens when you get 25,000? What's the timeline there? You got back from the conference and, you know, the article was written or or how long did it take for that to actually come out? The article was written at the conference. And then again, it was, it sort of sparked this series of others. So the article was on the next web and then Lifehacker picked it up and then some random Greek blog (laughs) picked it up and it ended up, which clearly was a really impactful Greek blog. I I can't speak Greek, so I was not exactly sure what it said, but that was like 10,000 users. It was very strange because of our initial user base. It was like overwhelmingly Greek. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Greece. Um, And uh, sorry, what what was the... Oh, and then I'm wondering... um, yeah, I mean, it's overnight, you get all of these users, what do you do? I mean, did it crash your server? Is it what happened? It didn't, which okay. is a huge testament right. to my co-founder who engineered something that was able to scale. But what we built was really rudimentary. You basically would go through the list of cities, say yes or no. You couldn't put in dates and parameters yet. And the whole premise of the app is that we send you alerts when these things happen. And we hadn't actually built the system to do that. We'd built the system to collect what your 
desires were, but we hadn't automated the alerts that we were sending out yet. So mm. it was basically me sending manual alerts still, um, based off of our own sort of tech on the back end, filtering them out. But uh, so we just, yeah, we got down to work. Mm. We had a lot to build, but partially because I think we hadn't fully built out the product and also because of how it was built, almost none of those users stuck around. So we maybe had, we had 25,000 people sign up and two months later we had maybe 500 active users in the app. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's really interesting, that, and that's actually always a challenge. Part of the reason why, if you let's say talk to an investor, right when you have a huge growth spurt in uh, users, they want to see some time to actually figure out the engagement because maybe it's just a fluke, or maybe you don't you can't retain them, and then obviously leaky bucket that that's not really a product or business that you can invest in. But um, you at this point, what? well, so actually, I had a quick question. Uh, you got all these users and you know now we have to build a bunch of functionality. Did you know how to manage product at this point? Was it just you trusted your co-founder to figure out how to uh, put together the roadmap and how to prioritize which features to build and stuff like that? We both were very much learning as we went along and I was the de facto product manager and he was the head of engineering. My self-taught engineering skills were very quickly surpassed. <laughs> mm-hmm. They were not going to be sufficient to this, but he had been an engineer for 15 years. And so, yeah, we were just learning as we went along. And there are a lot of great resources out there online. And we also leaned very heavily on our friends for judgment. But yeah, it was flying by the seat of our pants. And um, so how did you figure out which features to build when? Did you talk to users at that point? Yes. So talking to users is always important, but even more important, I would argue, is looking at the data. Because especially when you're talking to users, especially when the users who actually respond to your emails are predominantly people you know already, Mm. it's hard for them to give candid feedback. And we also just found a few fairly understandable things. People talk about wanting to go to Bali, but they actually book trips to Miami, you know, so the desires that they think that they have, the features they think they want, aren't necessarily the ones that are worth building, because they may or may not ever be used. Mm -hmm. So I had no conception of the idea of analytics. But very quickly, we learned to go deep into our user funnel and figure out and just look at what people were actually touching within the app, what they were searching for, what they were converting on. And that was honestly a lot more instructive than the user interviews, uh, because you saw what people were actually doing rather than what they thought they were going to do. So do you feel like, like what is the right amount of data to have? Uh, a problem with a lot of companies is you don't have enough users to know whether the data is meaningful. So did you have to wait for a certain amount of users to know, okay, this is what is resonating and we should do more of, and this is what we need less of? Yeah, absolutely. I think you put that well. You do need to have enough data to go on. Obviously, not everyone has that luxury, but we did have this influx of what I, you know, certainly a statistically significant amount of users and we could see what got people to stick around and also over time you were able to see okay, this is the thing that keeps people engaged in the short term. This is the thing that people will come back to a month later. One of the things that was one of the key features was the ability to see where your friends lived. Because Facebook used to allow you to download all of someone's friends' locations. Mm. Unfortunately for our user functionality, they changed that in 2015. 
So we lost that access. But we did see that was one of the things that got people to open up the app three months later is because they were like, oh, I'm thinking of going to Paris. Who do I know who lives in Paris? Oh, well. So even though you lost a, a bunch of the users that you were able to acquire in that with that press, or at least you were only able to retain maybe like 5 or 10% of them or even less than that, were you able to get back those people? Like, did they give, leave their email address where you could still continue to market to them? <laughs> yeah, we, we also didn't ask for their email address early on, mm-hmm. but then we, we started to. Mm-hmm. Actually, we the very first version of the app, we required Facebook login, and people hated that, mm-hmm. and it really tanked our user ratings. To have problems with the functionality of the app, they had problems with the fact that we required Facebook login. So we changed that very quickly and made login totally optional. But that also made it harder to follow up with people. At the end of the day, we wanted to get the friction to getting people in the app as low as possible. And so to this date, we don't require email address or anything like that. And obviously, if you have uh, hundreds of thousands of emails from people signing up, that's great. But people don't open their email very often. We've never found that to be a super useful marketing tool. So you are making it more functional to now help people stick around and actually find utility in the, in the application. But at this point, you have about 600 users, I would say, right after the couple months and a little attrition and people that haven't come back. And press seems to have worked. And also, obviously, some of the organic work that you were doing. Did you try to then replicate that in some way? Like, I guess we need to figure out how to get more press to grow our audience, or what was your idea around uh, continuing to kind of grow this number? Because I'm assuming it's at a certain point, even though you were fortunate enough to uh, have some runway and, and bootstrap, it sounds like the business, you thought about fundraising as well, right? Absolutely. And we did fundraise at this point. So with the initial 25,000 users, you know, I was not able to fundraise before that point, I think a lot of people, especially if you're in Silicon Valley, it's like, oh, if you have a good idea, of course you should be able to fundraise. I don't think that's true at all, no. especially if you're someone with an unconventional background and who doesn't fit the natural demographics that a lot of people fund. And so I was initially bootstrapping and then we raised money in the beginning of 2014. Mm-hmm. And we used that to completely rebuild the app and change the design of it. So we got rid of the swipe right, swipe left, and turned it into this infinite scroll that was much more engaging and made a bunch of other changes to how people interacted within the app. And that was those were informed a little bit by user interviews and, and data, but it was also very much just intuitive design, taking a chance and trying to build something that we thought would be more engaging. And so we re-released the app and we contacted a bunch of press. We had been contacting press and trying to get more articles written all the time. And it turns out that people don't really want to write about your app in the absence of any significant news. Hmm. But I do think there are two important points where you can always get coverage. And that is initial launch, obviously, when you're announcing it. And then coming out of beta, which is sort of like a second launch. Mm -hmm. And then after that, if you have a really significant feature and people might want to write about that, but the first two are are pretty guaranteed. So we ended up contacting TechCrunch and someone wrote a feature on coming out of beta. And so that was not as big a boost as the initial NextWeb sparked flurry of uh, coverage had been, but 
we did see around, I think, 5,000 downloads or something from that. And I've got a few other mentions. One thing that actually was important, we posted it on Hacker News, which is news.ycombinator.com, and got a few people with good karma to upvote it. And so it ended up getting a little bit of traction there, which drove a bunch of traffic to TechCrunch, which lobbed that article up to one of the top articles of the week, Hmm. which meant it went out in its newsletter. So five days later, when that weekly newsletter went out, we got like another 5,000 people. Oh, wow. Okay, so that sounds like press started to work a little bit once you had more of a strategy around it and actually some news around it. But, you know, the time between that first press article and second one, there was a lot of building and, and I'm sure resources that you had to use. Um, so tell us about the that fundraising experience then, because you were, uh, based on my information, able to attract people like the chairman of Orbitz and the founder of JetBlue as uh, your investors. So clearly you were successful at it. How did you go about it? Like everything else, uh, completely from a space of ignorance and bumbling into things, but the things that worked. I always say the best introductions to investors come from other founders that the investors have invested in. That's number one. Number two is other investors who have invested in you, which I think is counterintuitive. A lot of people think that investors are going to be able to recruit other investors very well, but I haven't found that to work very well. But if you have a founder who's making an investor money, that's the best recommendation you can get. And then from, you know, acquaintances of investors and and then, you know, on down the rest of the chain. So I built up a list of investors I wanted to target through AngelList and my own research. There was a really great blog post written by a guy named Dave Ambrose of investors who don't hate travel, which is important because most investors really hate travel. Why is that? It is, I would say, uh, actually, Gary Tan, who was a Y Combinator partner now at Initialized Capital, he wrote a really great blog post called The Most Common Bad Startup Idea, and it's a travel planning app. (laughs) Turns out that there's a very high overlap between adventurous entrepreneurial people and adventurous travelers. And so there are a lot of people who are frustrated by the travel experience, decide they're going to build something, and they build something for this tiny niche, not realizing that 99% of the traveling population is nothing like them. And so there are just so many travel. I get every day I get introduced to people who are starting travel companies by well-meaning friends who are like, oh, my friend's starting a travel company. Surely you have an hour to have coffee with him, Uh, which (laughs) is not true. Uh, And so I think it's just a very, very common startup idea that people go into from a place of loving travel rather than having any real business insight and something that's going to change the way that people travel. And then they build stuff for people like them instead of for the actual market. And... Most investors get excited about a travel thing early on in their investing career and get totally burned (laughs) and then never want to invest in travel again. But you made a list targeting people that you thought are going to be travel friendly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And again, built largely off of this list that this guy, Dave Ambrose, who was an entrepreneur at the time, became and he's an investor now, Mm. had built and then AngelList and reading and just looking at who had invested in other travel startups using Crunchbase, 
yeah, all of these tools out there are pretty useful and asking around. That's a smart way to do it. Uh, we always tell entrepreneurs that, you know, there's going to be only a small subset of people that are likely to invest in you and you might as well do a targeted approach because it's already hard. You might as well make your job easier. And that's smart that your first time around you figured that out. Um, so how many do you think you have, you reached out to? How many meetings do you think you have to have before you got people to invest? Uh, I know all of these statistics because I keep rather obsessive track of them. I, I haven't actively fundraised in a couple of years, but I've talked to 325 investors in like sit down proper meetings. Hmm. And I talked to over 100 before I got my first yes. This concludes part one of our conversation with Jillian Morris. Yes, we did leave you on a cliffhanger, just like a good Netflix show should. Yeah, I mean, hey, maybe we'll be on Netflix pretty quick here. Who knows? Yeah, Netflix is getting into audio. I don't know if you guys heard. It's not. I just made that up. But hey, they are actually. Oh, they are? Well, I'm not sure. But listen, uh, part two is going to be really interesting. We're going to release that next Wednesday, and that's where Jillian is going to talk about her experience fundraising, how she was able to uh, successfully do so, and how she ended up growing the company from there. Can I just say Jillian is super nice. She came in. First of all, her voice is incredibly soothing. I really enjoyed listening to the first part of this episode. I'm going to be listening to the second part tomorrow. Uh, but she also brought raspberries. Or was uh, it blackberries? Black or? raspberries. Oh, just black just raspberries. to bring something, which she, just shows yeah. somebody that's so polite was raised well. I don't think anyone else has brought us any gifts. Uh, no, not true. Coffee Project oh, uh, ladies brought us coffee. Oh, um, actually, Wandering Bear brought Wandering us coffee. Bear brought us coffee. Uh, soap. Soapply brought us soap. Yeah, Supply. Yeah. Supply. Yeah, she did bring soap us soap. Line. So we got a bunch of free stuff we do. because of this gig. So, hey, listen here. If you have a great company, like maybe a drone company, company or I don't know a flying motorcycle company and you want to give us a free flying motorcycle yeah or Porsche Care 4S company get on that get your PR it's people fine. to reach out to our PR people just kidding they can just email us we'll talk uh, and we'll get you on the show but hey stay tuned for next week's episode with part two with our conversation with Jillian Morris mm-hmm.